the kingdom of Cain. The kingdom of Cain. Oh Lord, I can't speak this word today without your Holy Spirit coming and and hiding me and quickening this. Lord, this is such a difficult issue to deal with. Lord, would you just expose it and uncover it? Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the gospel? Well, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. So then, what is the good news that we have received? I was trained to believe that the good news was that I was saved. Is that the good news? Well, that's part of the good news. But that's not what the gospel means. Let's begin in, in the book of Mark, the first chapter, the first verse. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hallelujah. Are you shocked already? <laughs> the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's not good news about me. It's good news about Jesus. Now, that's a shock to me because everything is supposed to be for me. But the gospel is not about you and me. It's about Jesus. Then look with me at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God or the good news of God. So what was this gospel that he was proclaiming? The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So the good news is, or the gospel is, that the kingdom of God has come and that we've been given the right First chapter of the book of John, we've been given the right to enter into this kingdom, this kingdom of God. So the gospel is the good news that I can enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, this issue of kingdoms is very difficult because each of us has a kingdom. Let me be clear. I have a sphere of influence in my life. And I'm in charge of making the decisions regarding that sphere of influence. What I will do with my time, what job I will take, who I will contact, what I will do. In other words, there are a whole variety of activities I'm in charge of with my life. That's my kingdom. Now there is a, a belief today about community building in the body of Christ. And according to this philosophy, the church is a place where we all come with our kingdoms and we hook our kingdoms together. And as we hook our kingdoms together, we become unified together in the body of Christ. 
and I have to tell you today as a pastor, that almost all conflict in the body of Christ comes out of one person's kingdom rubbing up the wrong way against someone else's kingdom. And so you have all of these little fiefdoms with all the people in charge of those fiefdoms. And so we need to have meetings to sit down and talk about how we'll have peace between these kingdoms or these fiefdoms. And often the role of the pastor is to mediate between the fiefdoms. Many churches in my past, that has been my primary duty. My calendar would fill up with meetings to resolve the conflicts between fiefdoms. You understand how difficult this is because let's say we're in the prayer circle and one brother is praying and, and worshiping the Lord that he was able to witness. He was able to share the gospel with somebody. You have another brother come along and pray and say, Lord, the power is not in the, in the testimony and the witness. I don't want to have a witness that doesn't have power. I want you, Jesus. Whoa, wait a minute. Now you've got one brother feeling like another brother has just put him down in the prayer circle. Well, no one came to church with the expectation that his territorial rights would be violated by another. We don't come to church expecting that to happen. But it happens constantly. So then the question comes, how shall we resolve the conflict between these both dear brothers whom we love and respect? How shall we settle the conflict between the fiefdoms? Now I need to also share with you in all honesty, that husbands and wives have this issue at home as well. Mama has her fiefdom and daddy has his fiefdom. Certain things daddy's in charge of and certain things mama's in charge of. When dad doesn't do what he's supposed to do to support mama's fiefdom, anger can result. The finger of accusation can be pointed. If you would just... Dad, he's taken back and now he has to defend himself. He has to marshal the armies and have them come marching out with the drum roll. And the battle is on. Did you know that even children have fiefdoms? And a family, let's say you have a family of three or four or five or six or seven kids. Oh, now you need a dictator over them all. I was walking with Jan yesterday 
And Daddy was putting two little children in the van as we walked by. And we heard him shouting. So we listened. And he was saying, put your coat on. It's only 50 degrees out here. I'm warm. I don't want to put my... Put your coat on. I make the rules here. Whoa. This little one's army is not yet big enough to deal with dad's army. But I can tell you this, the day will come when this little one will grow up and have an army powerful enough to resist dad. And then he's going to yell and shout and get all kinds of mad. So how do we deal with these fiefdoms? Genesis, the fourth chapter. Genesis, the fourth chapter. We find Cain, the eldest son of Adam and Eve. And now there has been born another son by the name of Abel. They both have their work. We find that Abel keeps the flocks and Cain works the soil. And now in the course of time, in verse 3, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering before the Lord. Abel brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So now we have two men with two kingdoms. And they are now each bringing the appropriate offering for their kingdom. One offering is accepted, and the other offering is rejected. And war breaks out. Murder results. Mayhem. Bitterness. Conflict. This is always the result when two kingdoms cannot work in harmony one with another and territorial rights are violated. War breaks out. We need to understand these two kingdoms. The kingdom of Cain is a kingdom that says, I rule. I make the decisions. I exercise my authority. And all of my subjects must line up with my desire and my will. I am king over my kingdom. And if another violates my kingdom, I will marshal those resources I have available to repel them and to block them. This was the kingdom of Cain. Now Abel, on the other hand, brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock we find just a hint in the story 
The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Aha, we just found a key. Cain has his kingdom. Abel has surrendered his kingdom. He is a part of the kingdom of God. He's walking in obedience before the Lord and chooses to do what the Lord God of heaven has asked him to do without any recognition of why it's so important that he do it. He doesn't understand that this is a symbol of Messiah who is going to come and who is going to rule the kingdom that he has joined. But he, in obedience, offers to the Lord what has been requested by the Lord because he is a subject of the kingdom of God. Cain, on the other hand, believes that he rules over his kingdom and another kingdom should recognize his right to bring what he chooses to bring. The other king should respect his kingdom and say thank you for anything offered. He didn't have to offer it after all. It was a gift of peace. It was a gift recognizing that God had the right to have his kingdom, and Cain had the right to have his kingdom. And the Lord said to Cain, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Do you recognize at all the rage that must have raised up in Cain's heart to cause him to kill his brother? Have you ever killed your husband or your wife with your attitude and your words? Have you ever killed mom and dad with your attitude and your words? Have you ever killed your kids with your attitude and your words? Do you recognize that that comes out of the kingdom of Cain and not out of the kingdom of God? We need to be very clear about what kingdom we're participating in. I want to be very blunt with you. A church is to embody the kingdom of Jesus Christ as a sign that the kingdom of God has come. Therefore, 
All thrones must be abdicated. You cannot bring your kingdom into the kingdom of God. There cannot be two kings. There can only be one kingdom. And if you are bringing your kingdom into the kingdom of God, you are in rebellion, and the Lord would say to you, sin is crouching at the door, you must conquer it. The sin that is crouching at the door is your right to have your kingdom, the kingdom of Cain. Now, this is so very difficult for us because all of us are accustomed to exercising authority over our lives and over those who are in a part of our kingdom. It's my house, it's my rules. No, if you abdicate the throne, it becomes God's house and God's rules. It becomes God's church, not my church. It's God's kingdom, not my kingdom. And if you'll just reflect with me for a moment, you'll recognize that that we have allowed our kingdom to intrude on all the areas of the kingdom of God. The way we use our time, the way we use our money, our thought life, under the illusion that we can have our little kingdom and Jesus' kingdom as well. Cain is confronted by the Lord God of heaven in verse 9. Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, we have two kingdoms here. He has his kingdom, I have my kingdom. I don't keep track of him. I don't keep track of my brother's kingdom. He is responsible in his kingdom, and he has his army to support him. I have my army to support me. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Can some of you today hear the blood of your brother crying out from the ground? Now you're under a curse. Driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's, your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you because you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. You remember when Adam sinned, the curse was, you now will till the ground and you will produce your livelihood out of the soil. So what God has done is take from him his ability to make a livelihood. He's taken his job away from him. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. No. 
God did not say that part of the curse was that Cain was to be left out of God's presence. The only reason Cain would be excluded from God's presence is if he maintains his kingdom. If he surrenders or abdicates his kingdom, he will not be shut out of the presence of God. We are always shut out from the presence of God when we operate in our own kingdoms. Until we advocate, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God, and the good news is bad news. <clears throat> the bad news is, if we maintain our kingdom, we will not have the presence of God in our hearts. Instead, we'll have bitterness, and defensiveness, and anger, and hurt. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord interrupts him, says, no, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he'll suffer vengeance seven times over. In other words, Cain, even though you are rebelling against me with your kingdom, I'm going to protect your kingdom. Oh, that's mercy. That's mercy. Why would God show such mercy? Because he knew the only way that anyone would advocate his kingdom was if he saw Jesus die on the cross. The Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. You know, I want that mark on me. I want the mark of God on my forehead. I wonder what the mark looked like. It was God's mark on him that when anyone saw him, they would know that this man was loved by God. Even though he'd established his own kingdom and was in total rebellion against Almighty God. Did you know God loves sinners? He loved me. He loved you. It's his mercy. You would think that God would have put a mark on this man that said, kill him. That's how we operate our kingdoms. If somebody is fighting against our kingdom, we hope a bigger kingdom will come and take them out. But the Lord puts a mark on him and says, hey everybody, give this man Cain special love. Go out of the way to be kind to this man. Oh, that's mercy. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod means wandering or wander. So Cain went out and lived in a place of wandering. East of Eden, literally in the Hebrew, a place of new beginnings outside of Eden. So I want you to get the picture of Cain's life now. Cain is always going to be starting over 
as a wanderer. He'll never be able to settle down. He's always going to have a hole in his heart that is saying, I have to conquer more territory. I have to get more love. I have to wrest out of the world something from me because I'm always wandering east of Eden in a place of wandering. That's the condition of every man and woman's heart who will not advocate the throne of their heart and give it over to Jesus Christ. Always looking for that new love. Always looking for that new achievement. Always looking for that security. Always trying to carve something out for myself so that I can be considered respected. That's the kingdom of Cain. And so what does Cain do? He goes out and begins to build a city, and he becomes a man in business. He now will make his money in business, doing deals in a city of his making. And now we have the forerunner of the city of Babylon, standing in opposition to Jerusalem. Now, as we consider this, this kingdom of Cain, The question of the ages is how shall we once more be brought into the presence of God? How are we going to be able to advocate our kingdom and enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus came announcing you can now advocate your throne and come into the kingdom of God. You can now hear the good news. The war is over. The price has been paid. The atonement has been made. Now this is where the Christian church has gotten in a great deal of difficulty. John Wesley came proclaiming a gospel that began to transform the culture, began to transform institutions of higher education. Every part of the culture was permeated and changed by the message that John Wesley brought. It was a it was a revival message. It was a radical message. It was out of step with the culture and with the religions of the day. Wesley made an astounding assertion that any time you have men and women living in ungodliness as a part of the church, it's because they have not been taught correct theology. So if you would look at our culture today, you see churches on every corner. 
But the theology they are being taught is not a Reformation theology. Oh, it's the Reformation theology of John Calvin. But it's not the Reformation theology of Jesus Christ. It doesn't transform lives. There was a charge that was always made against John Wesley and William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And that charge was that they were preaching salvation by legalism. They were being legalistic. John Wesley refuted this time after time and grew weary with the foolishness of this charge. His assertion was that we are saved by grace. We are saved by faith. Justified. We are sanctified by grace. We are sanctified by faith. If you read some of the great thinkers that are alive today in the evangelical Christian church, I would point out just one of them, gentleman by the name of Dallas Willard. Dr. Willard is a highly respected philosopher, theologian in the, in the American church. He says, we are justified by faith. We are saved. And then we enter into a process of sanctification where we work very hard using specific disciplines to achieve sanctification. He said sanctification is much like learning how to play tennis or learning how to speak Japanese. It's a craft. You apply yourself to it. And by exercising the proper disciplines of fasting, solitude, a number of different disciplines, by applying these disciplines, you enter in more and more deeply into sanctification. But he's quick to add, sanctification is in no way connected to salvation. They are disconnected. You are saved when you are justified, and you cannot be lost again. And now you enter into the kingdom of God, and now you enter into a process of sanctification. Well, the result of this kind of teaching is that the American church has lost its power. It's lost its authority. And it has allowed us to establish in the church our own kingdoms once more. And he then goes so far as to say, we must then hook together our separate kingdoms and learn how to live with one another in peace. 
Now, what John Wesley taught was radically different than this. He taught that when we were justified by faith, all of our past sins were wiped out. Every sin of the past was wiped out by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then as we take the next step and are sanctified by faith, not by works, as a gift of God, we are made righteous. Not declared righteous. Declared righteousness comes out of the Old Testament. It comes out of the blood of bulls and goats, where God had them offer sacrifices and then put his hand over them, declared them righteous so that legally he could pass over their sins and not judge them until Jesus died on the cross. And then the blood of Jesus wiped away those sins that they had confessed and repented of and turned away from. You recognize that even under the Old Testament system, there were sin actions that you could take that would result in stoning to death that were not covered by the declared righteousness. You find that when the man stole the Babylonian garment. Deliberate sin in the Old Testament might not be covered by this covering of declared righteousness. You come into the New Testament and now righteousness is not declared. You are made righteous as a gift of grace by faith, by the blood of Jesus, because the blood of Jesus is more powerful than the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of Jesus has all the authority and power to break the bondages of sin. Now, the Calvinistic teaching is that this does not happen until a man dies and is resurrected and is given a new body. And at that point, he is given a new nature, and he no longer walks in sin. Now you quickly see that that teaching opened the door to universalism, saying that every man is then going to be saved regardless of his actions, because... God loves everyone unconditionally. Now, the little caveat that's placed in it then is that God is going to save only those who have said a sinner's prayer and confessed their sin. And now, regardless of what they do in the future, they are, as Charles Stanley says, sin like the devil, and you are still saved. This has opened the door to such ungodliness and wickedness in our culture. It's a lie. So the charge is then made against Wesley's teaching and thus against the teaching that I brought here, which is straight out of the, the Scripture, but it's also 
out of the heart of John Wesley. As I bring this, the charges, Pastor Ray, you're teaching legalism. And this charge has been made many times in the last weeks. It's, it's a fire that's burning constantly. Because there's a misunderstanding. Now let me be very clear. There was a very specific course of action in the Wesleyan movement that killed John Wesley's revival. If you go to the Methodist church today, you will not find the teachings of John Wesley being lifted up. If you go to many holinesses, holiness churches, if you go to many of the Nazarene churches, you will find a legalism that is present. So what happened? My understanding of what happened in the Wesleyan movement is that at some point after Wesley died, a spirit began to enter in that said, let's draw up the rules for righteous living. And now men began to set up once more their individual kingdoms, but they brought into those individual kingdoms the rules for holiness and then began to condemn anybody else who didn't live according to the rules for their little kingdom. And so legalism sprang up in the holiness movement. So we need to be clear today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that the kingdom of God has come. And if the kingdom of God has come, if I'm going to be a part of it, I must advocate my kingdom. And I must enter into that kingdom of God. If you'll read carefully the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels, you'll discover that Jesus was very careful not to lay down a bunch of rules. as opposed to the rules of the Torah or the Old Covenant. He did not lay down. Instead, Peter and Paul both taught, walk not under the rules, not under the law, not even under your own personal law, live instead under the authority and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and He will tell you what to do. And He'll tell you what not to do. And as you walk in obedience to the commands of the Spirit, you are not doing that in order to be righteous. You are doing that because you have been made righteous. And it's a fruit that grows out of the life. But it's so easy to slip into this. Okay, if you're a member of the National Prayer Chapel, you cannot watch television. You cannot go to a dance. 
you cannot wear these clothes, you cannot do this, you cannot do that, and now let's check each other carefully and make sure that nobody's doing anything they shouldn't be doing, and if they are, come to the pastor and tell them, so-and-so is doing that, and we need to deal with them, we need to discipline them. No. That's the very thing that killed the Wesleyan movement. The observance of rules and laws. See, either this gospel is by grace and by faith and supernatural, or it's simply self-improvement. And so let's go to the scriptures now in the New Testament. I want to take you into some deep water. Galatians, the second chapter. You'll recognize quickly as you read through the book of Galatians a number of times that the real issue in the book of Galatians is not the law. The real issue in the book of Galatians is men and women who want to maintain their own kingdoms and they want to keep the law to maintain their kingdom because they do not want to submit to the crucifixion. They don't want to take up their cross. They don't want to deny themselves in order to follow Jesus. Let's look at Galatians, the second chapter, beginning in verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It has been a shock to me to recognize that this word justified, whether you go to Thayer or you go to Strong's or you go to other Greek resources, you will find that this word literally means in its verb tense, rendered righteous rendered righteous. What does the word render mean? Squeezed out righteous. Created righteous. Made righteous. The NIV and a number of other scriptures that you have that are translated in the English, even the King James Version, reflect very much a Calvinistic bent that is not justified in the Greek. If you'll read the Moffat translation or you'll look at other Greek resources, you'll quickly see that this is made righteous. Why is that true? And by the way, on this one word, a whole theology is hung. I'm unwilling to do that. When I look at the totality of Scripture, it seems to me that the whole point of all of Scripture is how can this man who is in rebellion as was Cain, how can he be transformed and redeemed or bought back and brought back into the kingdom of God? All of salvation history is about how this man can be rescued from this dark deception that he entered into with the devil. How can he be rescued out of that and brought into the kingdom of light? 
That's the story of all of Scripture. And so to take a word and to lay on that word all of the weight of salvation is a fearful thing for me. I have to lay the weight on the totality of Scripture. So we come to the word justified just as easily translated, made righteous, rendered righteous. You see, justification is a part of righteousness. But sanctification is just as much a part of righteousness because the whole deal is, how is a man going to be transformed into a righteous being? Righteous, you recognize, is a word that simply means innocent. Pure. Holy. So, how are we going to take this man? Are you going to try to tell me that the blood of Jesus Christ can cover all of my past sins, but it doesn't have any more power than the blood of bulls and goats, and it can't break the bondages of sin? Supernaturally? No, the blood of Jesus Christ has all the power. That's the totality of Scripture, is that the blood has the power to break and wash and cleanse and restore and make new. And it's through that blood that the atonement was made or the atonement with God was made. It's that atonement that bridged the gap between my heart and God's heart and allowed me to enter into the kingdom. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be made righteous by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be made righteous whether it's your law or God's law no one will be made righteous by legalism if while we seek to be made righteous in Christ it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? In other words, if I've been made righteous and sin is found in me, is that Jesus' fault? Is that a weakness of the blood? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. In other words, I can go back and I can rebuild the kingdom that I have advocated. I can say I'm missing my kingdom. I'm going to go back and take it back to my heart. And I'm going to be in charge once more. And if I do that, Paul is saying that I am then proved a lawbreaker because when I am in my kingdom, I'm under the law and not under grace. I'm no longer walking by faith. I'm walking in rebellion against God. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live when I abdicate my throne. My kingdom dies. 
When my kingdom dies at the cross, I can enter into the kingdom of God. And now Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for righteousness. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Same word. Now it's being used as a feminine noun instead of a verb. But it's the same word. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So I would ask you today, have you abdicated your kingdom? Or are you still trying to make peace with the surrounding kingdoms and with Jesus too? You cannot make peace with other kingdoms. Always a stronger, more aggressive king is going to show up and he's going to be after your kingdom. It'll be your boss. Be your wife. Be your children. It'll be a friend. Be a stranger. Be a guy driving down the road who doesn't like you taking up his space. But if you advocate your kingdom, the good news is you can now enter into the kingdom of heaven. And now you serve a king rather than being a king. That's good news. And now there's peace between my brother and myself, and we can't rub each other wrong because we serve the same king. He's not going to be offended by my soldiers encroaching on his territory because I don't have any soldiers to encroach on his territory. So peace is not made by holding a dialogue between our two armies, flying a white flag and saying, you know, come on, let's talk this. No. Peace is made when we both surrender our kingdoms and enter into the kingdom of Jesus. Now we come not as lords and masters. Now we come as servants. Compassionate servants. Humble servants. Not with our sword swinging. Not with our defenses in place. Those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are going to have kindly hearts. Merciful hearts. Compassionate hearts. Those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are going to be made righteous. And we need as a fellowship to pray this thing through until we have been sanctified by grace in the same way our past sins have been wiped out by grace, not by our hard work, but by a gift of God. This is done in the prayer closet. 
It's done at the job. It's done constantly as our kingdom is exposed in some new facet and we recognize it and repent of it and surrender it until finally it is totally the kingdom of God. Totally the kingdom of God. This is not legalism. This is the grace of God that is beyond all understanding. But the human heart is going to twist and turn in every way possible to maintain its authority and its fiefdom. I have the right to eat what I want to eat. I have the right to do what I want to do. If I want to pray, I'll pray. If I don't want to pray, I'm not going to pray. I have the right to say what I want to say. I'm not a doormat. You walk on me, I'm going to knock you off. I mean, we have to decide. Are we going to walk in our kingdom or are we going to walk in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Now, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the table is spread before us. And we don't have to spread our own table. In our kingdoms, we're always responsible for feeding ourselves. In the kingdom of God, he's always responsible for feeding us. And he brings our bread daily. Just what we need. He brings the bread of life to us daily. Oh, my brother and sister today, will you give up your kingdom? Will you hear the good news and will you enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ? And survey the landscape and find every holdout soldier in your heart and turn him into the kingdom of God. Let the, let the Holy Spirit take him prisoner. And let the grace of Jesus pour out over your life and your heart. Oh Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen.